I'm curious, what are your, if you had to say your top three? Cast albums? Cast albums, yeah. Oh, wow, that's a good question. Um, the, I mean, I would say, gosh, that's a, such a great question. Jumping back onto you for a second, though, okay. Ms. Calloway, my guest today. <laughs> Just wait. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a Tony nominee who you've heard us talk about on this podcast, either as a 20th Century Fox princess, possibly as a Disney princess, possibly as from the excellent Lost in Boston series or Merrily We Roll Along or Infinite Joy, which we only did two weeks ago. And we're so excited to talk to her, even though she's a lifelong Mets fan. Ladies and gentlemen, Liz Calloway. I'm so happy to be here to talk about the original cast album of Company and perhaps a little bit about my lifelong infatuation with the Mets. That's what it's really about, is it? That's what it's really about, really started it i did so and i should probably out. come out i should probably come out and say that i'm a phillies fan um, oh okay and okay. uh but I, but unlike a lot of phillies fans i hold i hold no i love baseball i harbor no ill will towards any other yankees fans maybe but everybody else is fine in my book <laughs> i feel the same way keeping it national league is kind of the best <laughs> is the best uh, circumstance um but this is so great and yes you're here to talk about company it sounds Kind of well, I just go ahead and ask, how did Company come into your life? Well, Company was actually the first Broadway show I ever saw. Oh wow. Uh, I was nine or ten. I'm I was from Chicago. Say, how- yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally the target age for right, company. Right, for company. Said, oh, what can we do to get a lot of kids to come with their parents? We'll do company. <laughs> company. Um I'm from Chicago, but I lived in New York for five years growing up. And Mm. my parents went and saw Company and brought home the cast album. And I just became obsessed with it and basically memorized it. And and then they took my sister and me to see the show. And I remember when I saw the show... I thought, wait a minute, they're doing it wrong. Why are they talking in the middle of the opening number? And why are they interrupting another hundred people? That's not the album. I just thought the show was the album. Mm. But I I loved the album then. And it was just, um, it's been a really important part of my life. It's an amazing album. Oh, it's an incredible album. And I mean, and just, we will get into it, obviously, of course, but like then 10 years later, for exactly. you to be working with down to like literally all the same creative people down to Thomas C. Shepard, the producer of the album. I mean, it being like all the way yeah, out. Everyone. Yeah. And it was at the Alvin theaters where the show was. Oh, that's when, true. I forgot. And Merrily We Roll Along was also there. And actually I didn't think about that. That's right. That Tom Shepard mm-hmm. produced both albums. So. Yes. Famously. Yeah. I mean, as a, uh, I love the, um, 
Well, we'll get to Marilee in a second, but I want to uh, first. So at <laughs> at nine, <laughs> I'm trying to imagine being not. I mean, I, I first heard company when I was I was probably 13. And even then I was a little like, you know, I didn't quite get it in, in it's all its glory and conceptual. What was it about at nine that really grabbed you about about company? Was it just the trappings of the theater or was there something sort of else to it, you think? I think it was the sound. There was mm. just something about the sound. That was not my first cast album. The very first album I ever owned was the original cast album of Hair. Mm. Talk about not knowing. I was going to say. <laughs> I still don't know. I the frying pan into the fire me. there a little bit. But yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think there was just something about the sound of company because I didn't understand it and um, the subject matter necessarily, but it was so fresh. And I, I just, when I heard Pam Myers. Mm. voice and mm-hmm. singing another hundred people and they made a party through the friends of friends who they never know will you pick me up or do i meet you there shall we let it go did you get my message because i looked in vain can we see each other tuesday if it doesn't rain we will call you in the morning when my service looks great and another hundred people just got off of the train and another hundred people just got off of the train. And another hundred people just got off of the train. And another hundred people just got off of the train. Another hundred people just got off of the train. You know, I knew literally every lyric, every song on on the album. And mm-hmm. as just a child, I just loved it. However, I will say, with the exception of dancing the TikTok dance in my living room in front of my family, I was a total closet singer and for years. And so I sang in the privacy of my bedroom. I never sang in. Really? Oh, yeah. So, no, I would like play records and sing, had my hairbrushes, my microphone like everyone else. Sure. But I never sang in front of people because I was too shy. But and so and I didn't when I was a kid, I, you know. I, I didn't really decide to get into that I wanted to do musical theater or anything until, you know, later in high school. So the transition for you from sort of performer into Broadway was incredibly short then. I mean, yes, it really was. So what drew you out of the bedroom and onto the stage? What was the what was the show? What was the image? Uh, in high school, it was my sophomore year. I was 14 and I I was in the chorus. I started I did like the chorus of a show. Um, I hadn't done any music in theater in school up until then. Mm -hmm. And my parents got divorced um, in the fall of my sophomore year. And Ana Alvarez, who is like one of like the most popular girls in the theater department came up to me and said, "Um, I heard about your parents and I'm really sorry would you like to come and hang out with me and my friends this weekend? And up until this point, I didn't, I was very much a loner, very shy. I did not have a lot of friends. And so I was like, uh, okay, sure. And I just, I suddenly had these amazing friends and I thought, oh, wait a minute. If I do theater, mm-hmm. I can be in a community of people and have that in my life. So, and let me just backtrack and say that 
for some reason, I have a crazy memory of being maybe eight years old and thinking to myself, if everything else failed in my life, I could fall back on a singing career. <laughs> it's insane. But I so knew pure. I had a voice. <laughs> like so, <laughs> I, it's so I, I just, I remember it very clearly because I knew I had a voice. Mm-hmm. I just didn't want to do it. I just, my mom sang, my sister sang. I was so shy, but I knew I had something. And so when all this happened and my parents split up and I suddenly started having friends and going to rehearsals just became the most amazing thing. And that's when I went, okay, that's what I want to do with my life. Then I became obsessed. Then I became obsessed. That's what I want to do. And that was the end of it. And that, so I was 14 when that happened. And, um, yeah, a very important cast. Another cast album, very important to me during that time was A Chorus Line. Mm. That was another whole mm-hmm. favorite, you know, seeing the A Chorus Line on the Tony Awards. That was incredibly inspiring to me. So, yeah. So I, I went to Cincinnati uh, CCM mm. uh, for musical theater. I left after a quarter to join an equity musical theater repertory company in San Jose, California. I was 17 years old and I moved out there and it fell through. So I worked at an amusement park, (laughs) Marriott's Great America, which I also did in, in Illinois. And my sister came out and visited me and said she was gonna be moving to New York, leaving college after two years. And I said, well, I'll come with you. So we moved to New York together. I was 18 and she was 21. And then I land narrowly about a year later. I was going to say, like, that's all pretty bang, bang, bang for that kind of that sort of setup. That's incredibly lucky. Um, And also, though, it's so that's so interesting to me that you went from basically not performing for anybody (laughs) to couple years later, only being like, well, I'll just quit school and go to San Jose and become a, a performer. Is, is that that sort of like, um, I don't want to call it recklessness, but that sort of like brazen, you know, I can do it sort of attitude. Is that something that you sort of had always had? Or is that, you know, did that come with the sort of with the, the, the your parents divorce and you're just getting yourself out there and suddenly found you had it with all this new group of friends? Well, you know, when I was in high school, so I was working at Marriott's Great America in Gurney, Illinois in the summer, which was some fantastic training doing five shows a day, like a lot of performers have had that kind of training. But I also used to fly to New York on the, for weekends by myself Mm. and see shows. I go to the half price booth and I'd see something and have pizza for dinner. And I don't know how my parents let me do that. They certainly (laughs) would not let my sister do that because she would have gotten in trouble, but I was very independent and I, I was very independent and I did have a certain, I mean, enormous insecurity, but also a certain confidence, I think, mm-hmm. and, and independence that I always had. And um, so that when it came time to move to New York, it just felt like, okay, yeah, we'll move to New York. Plus we had been there when we were kids, but Anna and I didn't know anyone. We didn't mm-hmm. have anyone helping us. And, but it was awesome. It was so exciting. And um, it was like a scene out of, you know, it was like a wonderful town. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I look back at the, you know, I, I look back at those, you know, 
years with such fondness. But yeah, I guess it's probably does sound a little reckless. Oh, I'm just going to move to New York. But, um, and I knew when I moved to New York, I knew I had, I had potential. Mm-hmm. Um, although I didn't have training and I gave myself a goal to get into the chorus of an off-Broadway musical in three years. Mm. I thought that was a sensible, sensible goal. Um, of course, I didn't know there, there were no choruses. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but, about know, the late I mean, 70s, right, early but, 80s. But I need to, but I, you know, I took classes and I auditioned mm-hmm. for everything I could. And I worked as a singing waitress. And, but I did, you know, I did so much better, so much faster than I ever imagined mm. I would have. And some of that was incredible good fortune and, you know, being at the right place at the right time. And mm-hmm. so, uh, so much of my career is like, if I hadn't done this, if I hadn't crossed the street here, if I hadn't turned right. left, so much of, of my career and my life um, has had moments like that. I think sometimes if my parents hadn't gotten divorced, Mm. would I have, you know, maybe I would have eventually found theater that that's what I wanted to do, Mm -hmm. but who knows? Sure. Well, there's no, I mean, there's no sense you can think about it, but you know, it it is what it is. It sort of happened and it, that's the path you took. There's so many people in the world, probably of amazing voices, so talented that no one's ever heard of. Oh, true. That they've never you know, some tried and weren't successful. And then some people never tried. I mean, so much of it is, I think, and we're reluctant, especially I think as Americans to admit this, is so much of it is luck and timing. And you really have no control over either of those things. You can be talented, you can be trained, you can be ready. But, you know, I mean, not only like you say, your 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 parents getting divorced or any of those impetus, but like, you know, if if Hal Prince hadn't decided to do Merrily We Roll Along, like like even in that moment, and then then they hadn't written it and weren't casting it when you were there, where would you have been for that? So it's it's a oh, very, yeah. you know, it's all happenstance in that kind of way. Yeah. It's it's God, yeah. If you really think about it, it's I know you'll drive yourself scary. nuts. It's like, oh, <laughs> Do you make all your guests cry? I do a little bit. Yeah, That's no, a just a little. Your- it's part of my, yeah, it's part of, it's my NPR aesthetic. But so when you came to me, what's so funny to me also though about, about company being, being a great, a big show for you is the, I mean, it's like in a lot of ways, the ultimate New York musical to me. And a lot of people joke, obviously that, you know, it's become a cliche now when people say things that are set in New York, like, oh, we think of New York as a character in the show, which gets nauseating after a while. <laughs> but in company, it's one of the few times where I actually feel like it's true, especially because like you say, Marta and, and Pamela Myers and another hundred people, the show has this whole aspect in the, in the middle of act one, basically, where we, we, we comment on the fact that like, this is a, the setting, this is an urban show. It takes place in, not just an urban show, but it takes place in New York. And it takes place in New York in a very specific time, which is one thing I wonder about as, as somebody who has been experiencing this show since you know its inception uh, or its release at any rate. Um, I'm always, I find that pr- productions that, that modernize company in any kind of way, it sort of loses a little something for me because it is a timeless themes, but there's something about the sound of the songs and the sound of that I mean, the album especially, but just the score feels very 1969, 1970 
to me in a very, very like kind of captured, like it caught lightning in a bottle. And anytime, I mean, not that there aren't great productions and great recordings of it since, but it always feels like it's missing that last little, you know, you take that little synthesizer off or that Waka guitar off and it's just like, mm, it's not quite, it's not quite what I remember it being. I, I agree. I, I think I agree. Um, I would go so far as to say that my favorite experience, I mean, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed every production of company I've, I've mm-hmm. seen. I've been, I've been so happy to go, but honestly, nothing has replaced. And maybe this is the, what happens when you have a cast album that you is so important to you that you completely memorize mm-hmm. that's company to me. It's not the show company with the story and the scenes and the, the physical production, mm-hmm. it's, in my mind, it's that. I remember seeing the first revival, um, Boyd Gaines mm-hmm. played Bobby, mm-hmm. and I had all kinds of friends in it. And they were all basically my contemporaries. Mm-hmm. And I thought, they're too young. To me, <laughs> company is, because I saw it when I was so young, company is about grownups. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, am still not a grown-up. Sure. <laughs> Even the, you know how, yeah. I mean, how, so my perception of it is, you know, if I know, I, it's, it can't be. They're not the right age. They're, um, the <laughs> amazing experience I had was, I think it was like 1992, was um, they did a, re- a reunion concert at Lincoln Center oh, yeah. of the original cast. Mm-hmm. And it was Easter Sunday. I was doing Miss Saigon at the time. I just given birth to my son, Nicholas. And my husband gave me an Easter basket and, and one of those plastic eggs. And I opened it up and it was two tickets to the three o'clock concert that afternoon. Oh my gosh. And he had gotten a babysitter. And I, of course, burst into tears. Sure. Because well, I knew how important that the album was to you mm-hmm. and to get to see it. And that was one of the most incredible live experiences in a theater, seeing all the, you know, and hearing mm-hmm. it from them, mm-hmm. you know, the, who I listened to. And of course, some of them looked dramatically different. Um, Larry Kurt had passed away. So mm-hmm. Dean Jones had come back to do the reunion. But so to me, that was my favorite experience of seeing company wow. and it was a concert version yeah but it had and, some uh, choreography and such i've seen video on yeah. youtube yeah you can you can watch but, it still then it, yeah, it has it was, some stuff to it, it was you know it was the essence of the show to me mm-hmm. and so all the other productions i enjoy it but i i i feel i'm always going to feel very uh loyal to you know uh you know how how i remember uh, the score. So when you, I, I can't imagine what, it, cause I mean, obviously I, I, as a big music theater fan, I have watched best worst thing that ever could have happened. You know, I have, I have seen everybody talk about merrily and, and all that, but I cannot imagine what it must've been like for you specifically in that setting to be like, when did you realize it was all the same people from company? Was that from the, the first audition or was it, did you get in a room and suddenly go, Hey, wait a minute. Like looking at like all the gang. Um, that's a good question. 
Well, I, I originally, my first audition, I went to the open call mm-hmm. and I, I stapled my birth certificate to my resume because they were looking for young people. And sure. I was, I was 19 and I got typed out and I, so I didn't even get to sing. So I was oh, like, wow. Oh, well, that's too bad. So, I mean, I certainly kn- knew that it was Sondheim and, and mm-hmm. I don't know necessarily if I realized how Prince at the, that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we talk about going back to talk about good fortune. I was doing a club act at the duplex and this, a composer named Brian Lasser. I don't know mm-hmm. if yeah. you, the late, great Brian Lasser, wonderful composer. He came to see my show because he's he was from Chicago, so he mm-hmm. knew I was from Chicago, and he told an agent he knew, "Hey, I just heard this young girl. You should submit her for the new Sondheim show." And so, as a favor to him, they submitted me without ever meeting me or hearing wow. me. And and I that was like five auditions later. Mm-hmm. That fifth audition was the scene in, you know, in the documentary, which is one of the reasons it was wonderful seeing the documentary and that footage. Cause I thought, Oh, it was how I remembered it. That mm-hmm. moment when we found out we were all in the show because mm-hmm. we didn't, I, we didn't know it was the final day. Um, right. Which is clear from everyone's allowed, reaction. <laughs> and I don't know if you'd even be allowed to do that many auditions <laughs> now, or they probably, you probably have to pay people to come in or now it would all be done virtually. Well, sure. Right now, yes. Yeah, right now. But um, so that was, you know, it was, I think, oh, my God, if he hadn't seen me, I wouldn't have gotten in the show. Right. You know, and so many um, in my club act, I sang another hundred people. Mm. And I think that was the only Sondheim song that I did then. But then I certainly knew it was Hal Prince and George mm-hmm. Ford and absolutely. And the Alvin Theater. Right. Yes. Is- um, the fact that, and oh my God. And when I got cast and I was originally cast as the swing, I remember calling my parents and they were just so thrilled. Mm. They were huge Sondheim fans. I remember my parents went going to see Follies and they were so the original Broadway production of Follies. And oh this is when they were still together and we were still living in New York. Um, and they walked out. Oh no. They were so excited to see it because they just loved Sondheim and they loved company. And they walked out. Oh, and I was wow. like, wow. And then years later, you know, I did I did, did a concert. concert. Right. I did yeah. Follies in concert and they both came and it was the, that was a highlight of my career. And then when I but I'd never seen the show mm-hmm. Follies. So when I saw the revival with um, Bernadette and mm-hmm. Danny and um, and I'm watching this, I'm thinking, my parents got divorced shortly after that. I'm going, no wonder. I was going to no ask, yeah. But I never understood it. Because then I thought, how could you walk out of Follies? It's such an incredible score. And I never understood it. And then I was like... Oh, now I understand it. (laughs) But if you go to Merrily We Roll Along, there are a lot of people who walked out of Merrily We Roll Along. Mm -hmm. And they probably 
or people stayed and they 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 bashed it mm-hmm. and now they're like i was there i saw it right. and now it's a badge of honor and now it's so respected but at the time it wasn't and it was you know so that for me to for that to be my first broadway show to work with all the same people from company and then for it to be something that was a was at the time a failure mm-hmm. was I think was just the a gift of the perfect Broadway show experience that mm. can that could prepare me for what a life in the theater, what this business is, the mm-hmm. ups and downs. So you can work with the best people and it doesn't mean that it's gonna be a success. And um, but boy, it was fun trying, you know, you know, getting that and we did a reunion concert of Merrily. Mm-hmm. Um a number of years later and that was incredible too i i think there's there is something about i'm a big fan of of reunion concerts mm-hmm. i think there's something that is really i mean there's nothing will play will replace being in a theater and seeing an entire show but sometimes when it's just the songs and it's just the you know you take away you take away everything else and you're just left with those, with the songs. I, I, some of my favorite moments as a performer and as uh, an audience member have been those moments. Well, I wonder, it's, it, it's an interesting experience with, with Sondheim specifically and his cast albums that are so lovingly crafted it always feels like but either Goddard Lieberson and you know with anyone can whistle and some of the early ones or Tom Shepard in the you know 70s and 80s and then and then up with J you know J David Sachs doing it in the 90s there is a real sense of making a complete purely oral artistic version of the show I especially feel this with the Merrily album where it really feels like Thomas Shepard took that out and was like, this, this needs to be preserved. And I'm going to preserve not only the score, but what I love about that album, and also this is true of company, is I get a sense of what it feels like to be at the show at its best. It has a real sense of like, you, you kind of get the, with Merrily the underlying premise that this is fun. This is all should be fun. And the irony you know, is built in in the middle to make you kind of understand the point of it on the album. In a way that I've I've seen revivals of it. You know, I saw it at the Kennedy Center when it was here a couple of years ago, and or twenty years ago, I guess now. And I've seen other productions of it, and it always feels to me like that album really cap. Nothing has been able to capture the spirit of Merrily. I think the intention, the way that album does. And I I have a the similar experience with Company, where it feels like it's very complete. It's very every time I've seen Company, like you say, like it hasn't exactly sounded like the album, but the mood does reflect what that album gives me. That it's like this is this one man's journey uh, through all these relationships, and you know sonically, it's just down to the fact that like Dean Jones is kind of always in the middle of the, of that album, like everywhere, even the numbers he's not in, he's always a little bit louder on the mix sometimes, so you can hear him kind of in the crowd a little bit. Mm. Um, it, it oh, just, it's a very interestingly mixed album. Yes, Having it is. Just listened to it for the first time in in years, I was like, wow. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that one long flat note that they'd never fixed. Yep. And the certain, <laughs> you know, and certain things. 
but it was such a raw, beautiful, beautiful performance of mm-hmm. every moment of that. I have to confess, I haven't listened to the Merrily album, like sat, I don't generally. I was going to say, why would you? I haven't. To reminisce, but yeah. But, but actually to listen to mm-hmm. a cast album from the beginning to the end. It's not something I, I've done in quite a long time. Mm-hmm. I used to listen to a lot more cast albums and now it's a different, it's a different experience. So I, it would be, especially after listening to the company album, it would be interesting after what you just said to listen to Merrily um, as a whole. And I mean, and I'm sure most people listening know that we recorded that album the morning after we closed. And it was, you know, it, we were all so exhausted and devastated and we got up so early and yet, boy, it was just, you knew it was the last time you were going to see these people. Mm-hmm. Although I, uh, ironically and and beautifully we're all very very close Mm -hmm. to this day it seems like it oh yeah we are in touch quite often and um but i think if we had not recorded that if we had Mm -hmm. if they had just decided you know what it was the show it was a failure we're not going to do the album imagine i mean that the fact that that was like it saved the show and it's say, you know, and now people can appreciate it, uh, appreciate the show so much more and say, oh, it's one of Sondheim's finest scores. But that's not how, you know, that's not how people felt at the moment. They didn't realize mm-hmm. what a gem it was. So it's it's a very interesting. Um, and as I listen to company, I'm like, oh, certain parts of it remind me of Merrily. Mm. transitions and, mm-hmm. and things like that it's really interesting it is it is also the 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 sort of double-edged sword of cast albums a lot for me merrily being a great example of because the score is great you know the album is fantastic the score is great but the score isn't it, that's not the show the show is the show the live presentation with the script and also how it was staged and the costume and like all those aspects of it and I think one of those things that people can get into with cast albums sometimes is like, oh my gosh, like this is an amazing show. Why didn't this do better? It was like, well, there was a lot of factors in there. And was also, you know, 1981, was it the right time for that show? Like, I don't, right. I don't know. And so again, with timing, like so many things have to go right for your show to run a year, let alone, you know, be, well, I was about to say Phantom of the Opera, but nothing's Phantom of the Opera. So like, you know, <laughs> to be a show that runs a couple of years and is something that, you know, has a, has a, a longer run to it is, is a very, very tricky, tricky thing. I don't think I ever realized or appreciated the art form of distilling an entire show into an experience of, Mm-hmm. you know, of a cast album. And of course, back when cast albums were records, it was always, you couldn't, you didn't skip. You right. didn't skip because, you know, and, and then you turned it over for side B. And so you experienced the whole, you know, we our listening is so different now because mm-hmm. we can, we might listen to something, an album once, but then we pick and choose and make our playlists and, and it's different, but boy, it's, there's something to be said for the, experiencing not just what the show was because 
you're correct. It's the show isn't the album. It that's almost its own. It's a different kind of show. That's what, that's what's so fascinating to me about cast albums. And one of the reasons I started this podcast is that there's no other art form that has this other kind of art form attached to it. That it's its own, like a cast album is its own thing. It's its own, you know, the, the art of, as you know, I have someone who's recorded a lot and been, you know, in record, like making an album is its own process. That's its mm-hmm. own set of skills. Making a show is a different set of skills. They are related, but and, and, you know, obviously why we have so many cast albums, but it is its own thing. And the difference between somebody like Thomas Shepard, who like, I think all of his albums have this in common, that he endeavors to craft a sonic experience out of them. Um, unlike, you know, other producers, randoms, you know, I, I don't want to say any like, the specifics, but I've talked about them on the show before regular listeners will know the albums I don't think are so great. But it's like, there's, there's a, you have to have that in your mind. And it's one of the things that I always feel that gets kind of lost in the modern way albums are recorded when everybody's in their own booth recording all their parts individually, the, the orchestra's recorded separately, you know, it's a lot more anesthetized and, and sterilized. Whereas like all the photos I love of like, both and the, you know, there's obviously the whole movie about the company cast album, but like, I love the photos. They're intoxicating of you guys all recording. I think I have one of my Twitter banner, you guys all recording the group numbers and you're standing there just wailing, you know, in front of like three microphones. <laughs> That's right. sort of like, never would it be recorded that way right. now. Never, wailing, never, never. Yeah. Absolutely exhausted, emotionally yeah. devastated and knowing this was, I mean, just, it was so heightened. Sure. It was just heightened. What I'm interested in, I have two sort of merrily questions that, that I really would, uh, I need to ask you, I think. The first one being, when did you know the show was not being received the way you thought it would be? Well, I would say, I would say it's, I would rephrase your mm. question in my answer because I would say, when did I know we, we might be in trouble? Mm-hmm. I would say maybe week two of rehearsals. Oh, really? It was that early? Okay. I, I remember during when, when I was cast in Merrily, uh, that great moment of mm-hmm. when we found out we were all in the show, you know, the good news, with, the good news and bad news, the good news is you're all in the show. Yay. The bad yeah. news is we were postponed because Hal had to direct an opera. Mm. And actually, that was probably one of the best things that could have happened to me in my career, because for the next eight months, I got a million auditions because I was going to be in the new mm-hmm. Sondheim Hell Prince show, even though I was hired originally as the swing. Mm-hmm. Didn't matter. Oh, she was cast in the new Sondheim show. So one of I did two off-Broadway shows. I did... I sang another hundred people at the uh, in performance at the White House uh, on the White House lawn. I did, and I did a TV movie called Senior Trip with Jason Alexander and Jim Weisenbach. Oh, wow. It was about okay. a group of high school students from Youngstown, Ohio, going to New York on their senior trip. Sure. And so I got to know them and, and Jason in particular. And so we had dinner at I remember having dinner at his apartment 
I think like the second week. And we both were like, hmm, mm. we might be in the, the, we just kind of went, I don't know. We just had a feeling that, um, that the show might not be working hmm. and that it might not be successful. By the time we opened, after all the months and previews and all the changes, you know, the mo- there was a moment when we thought we had fixed the show. Mm-hmm. I remember Sanan came on stage and we were all crying and we all felt like, I think the cri- maybe that was when the critics came and we thought, and, and I realize now, anytime you do a show, there comes a time where you just, no matter what, you believe in it, you have to, mm-hmm. and you totally think it's the greatest thing in the world and you're working on it. And we had that moment of, we solved it, we did it all. It was all worth it. And then after opening, I went with my parents to, what's the steak, uh, Gallagher's, I think. Okay. We waited to get the New York Times and we read Frank Rich's review. And mm. I went, oh, right. Mm. Oh, right. Uh, mm-hmm. There were problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, but I, that was also, for some reason, even though it was most of our first Broadway shows, it was my first Broadway show, I was never like so innocent and Mm -hmm. oh my god this is so wonderful I could see that it was a complicated story that was being told I mean I thought it was incredible music and I thought you know the cast was great and I mean I loved it but I could see that it was not necessarily an easy story to tell so um so it's kind of it's it's kind of interesting feeling that I was sort of an old soul in, in terms of uh, going, oh, you know, this may not work. And I think Jason kind of felt the same way. Um, I was going to say, you have a kind of like, I'm, I'm getting a kind of old soul sense from you that these things, it, it seems like you took a lot of lessons from Merrily very quickly, sort of while it was happening, whether you were intent, like consciously processing them or not, that there's an advantage and a disadvantage to sort of every like you know strike while the iron's hot you got a lot of great auditions you did a lot of great stuff the show opened it wasn't a hit and my second question i guess would be did did, i've heard especially jason alexander talk about how he had trouble getting work after it closed did you find that um well i went back to being a singing waitress Mm -hmm. by the way all my wisdom and oh this was so good as a first experience that is not how I felt. Sure, in immediately, the moment. Yes, right. You know, in the moment. Oh no! <laughs> Absolutely not. Oh yeah, I don't mean to make I'm you sound like always, an automaton. I'm sure yeah, you had a yeah visceral have, emotional reaction. In yeah, the moment. No, yeah, I have not. I, yeah, no. It's years later when you realize mm-hmm. when you've lived through a lot of things and you go, oh, I. How is it that I'm able to deal with? crushing disappointments and this and that, or why am I able to feel really terrible and then move on? It's because, you know, I've had, I've had that. Well, I, I waited tables again. And then, you know what? I Actually, one of the first things, Hal Prince, I think felt so bad for all of us. Hmm. He felt, you know, I've been thinking about him a lot lately and, um, there's something, have you ever listened to, it's a radio show, but it's also a podcast of Desert Island Discs. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. 
And my husband's obsessed with it. So we've been listening to a lot and we listened to one that Hal did right before Phantom opened. So oh. it was kind of, and so it was really interesting. It was just wonderful to hear his voice and, mm -hmm. and he didn't talk about Merrily, mm -hmm. but I knew it wasn't that long after that. Right. But he felt, I think he felt bad for all of us. And so he tried, he, he tried to offer jobs for people. Like you could be in the national tour of, I think I, I think I got a call to audition for like the understudy of Mrs. Lovett in a tour of Sweeney Todd. I mean, I was like wow. 20 and I what, say. You know, well, yeah, I, and I did, I didn't do that, but some of my castmates, they went on and did hmm. certain things that uh, was really, it was really very, very sweet of, of how, um, but I got a call. What year did Merrily close? Was 81. that? 1981. 81. Yep. Mm -hmm. In 1983, I did so. I did a um, a Stephen Sondheim evening. Yes, I have questions. Which about was that. a concert. <laughs> that was, but that mm -hmm. was, and so I remember thinking it was me and Steve Jacobs, and we were both hired right. as swings originally, and I was like, it, it, that was an amazing experience. But I thought, why me? Hmm. You know, literally, when I auditioned for Merrily, I sang 32 bars of Be a Lion at five auditions. I never sang anything more. I never sang anything longer than that. So I hmm. barely sang. And I don't know if you know this, but I mean, there's a long story of how I ended up being in the chorus and understudying Annie Morrison. That was because I got offered another job mm. to do a lead role at the public theater in um, uh, a show directed by Richard Malpe. I oh. auditioned during that's and that's how he found me for baby. Wow. Because I went to this audition. But anyway, I, I got this part and Hal said that if I stayed in the show, he put me in the chorus and I could understudy Annie. And so I had to decide whether to do a lead role, you know, off Broadway, mm -hmm. big, a lot of buzz in the show. And I chose Merrily, just my gut said to stay with Merrily. Mm. And the other show was Gallery and it never opened. So Ooh. I made the right decision. Wow. And during the show, during the two months of previews, um, you know, we made changes every day and Annie Morrison got sick and she never missed a show. But, you know, every day she would be on the stage of the Alvin Theater and work on the new scenes. And they had me sit in the front row and I would sing when it came time for a song, I would mm. sing songs. Mm. So she could save her voice. Sure. And, and it, I didn't think about it until years later. And also after being asked to do a Stephen Sondheim evening that Steve heard me. Mm -hmm. He heard me singing his songs, even though I wasn't aware <laughs> of it. All I was doing was just sitting there singing the songs and it was fun, you know, to, to be doing that. But I went, Oh no, that was my audition. That's why I, I eventually ended up doing things like Stephen Sondheim evening and follies and concert and stuff. Mm -hmm. But Stephen Sondheim evening and singing echo song, I got to say like, that is one of my favorite recordings, especially of a cut song. It's you guys doing Echo Song because that song is so funny. 
And it's you a guys... great song. Tell me. Should I hold him? Or forget him? Get him. And for go my love. Go my love. Go my love. Thank you. Thank you. I believe now. Believe now. I must hurry. Hurry. So I'll say goodbye. Say goodbye. Say goodbye. During the pandemic, I have been digitalizing things, boxes mm. and boxes mm -hmm. of cassettes and VHS tapes. You can see behind me, I have like a, a VCR station, and a yeah. TV with so because I've just am trying to put stuff on my YouTube channel. I have a I have a cassette of rehearsing a Stephen Sondheim evening. Mm. And you get Steve. And you hear some of the stuff, and I'm going, "Ooh!" I just oh put gosh. something on YouTube, um, uh, and I did a really early demo of "Just Around the River Bend" from Pocahontas, mm -hmm. and I just put that on my YouTube channel just because it's so interesting to hear how songs have changed, and um, it's just been like my little project to, I don't know, have things that maybe people haven't heard. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, oh, this would be really interesting. And I think we were, we probably were rehearsing the Echo song, which mm -hmm. is why I heard it. It's a brilliant song. It's so, and it was, it's another example for me though of, I mean, that song is so funny and is one of those great songs that actually ends in a punchline in a comedy show, like actually has a joke that the lyrical rhyming joke that the audience is, I think, in tune with they see the problem <laughs> right when it arrives he's like tell me yes so i may know and he goes uh, uh, he does no idea what to do in that moment but it was also funny when i i produced a production of, of forum when i was in college and the director wanted to replace that'll show him with the echo song because we thought oh it's a much better song wrote got permission was all set to do it and then we realized that the book scene that you have to kind of do to set it up takes so long <laughs> to set oh. up the joke and then we went oh that's why they cut it because it just takes far too long to set it's basically what happens on the album where i don't remember who it is but sets you guys up in the scene so the audience can understand what's going on and the dialogue sequence that goes with it is just like oh my gosh this goes on for like by the time you're done <laughs> you're sort of like man it's a great joke but it takes far too long to set up so never mind we'll do that i'll show him which requires no setup at all we just jump right into the song and and it and it's it's in the middle of the music it was a great moment for me of being like ah it's the show it's not just this the song doesn't also have to be good but i'm it's, surprised they were they, they gave you permission i mean that's cool it's so funny when we did shows in college uh, the the word was and i don't know if this is just because it was pre-internet so like i guess if they figured you went to the time to write because you had to write a letter right you know you couldn't even so if you I think they went if you went to the time to write the letter it's okay but we there was a couple of, of productions we did in college where we wrote there were Sondheim shows we wrote for permission to to use cut songs or alternate versions we always got it it was never it was thank you for writing is approved by Mr. Sondheim and the whole like thing the exception piece 
that our director of the music theater program wanted was doing merrily and wanted to do the original book and that was rejected that would the the original book wanted to also put rich and rich uh rich and happy back in out of you know of that frank like wanted to do the original production and that was vetoed um with the statement that the revisions are a much better show from mr sondheim so we were like well you know that's fine we asked and that was the only time that is also admittedly the largest revision that anyone ever asked for in college that's a whole other script and a whole other you know right thing right. that's not just one yeah, song there's yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I'm not surprised about that. Yeah. I'm surprised about that. Again, I, I'm a purist. I'm mm -hmm. a purist with company. I'm a purist with like merrily. I, uh, yeah, maybe all the changes are great, but I just remember what we did, mm -hmm. you know? So in my mind, I'm just, I'm partial to it because that's my history with it. Mm -hmm. um, in listening to the album again, and listening to someone is waiting mm. and some, and I kind of thought, do you need marry me a little? I mean, it's a really good song, but do sure. you, but do you need it to tell the story? I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't think you do. <laughs> Even though I, I love the song sure. and I think happily ever after that I've never sung it. That would be, a, a, that would be fun to try. I'm really interested in how the show has has grown with you as you've grown in the theater. Is it a show that you've come to appreciate more? Is it a, a, a or is it the sort of thing where like listening to it really captures you back where you were the first time you heard it? Or is it more, is it both? Well, having just listened to it all again, I have even more appreciation for it. For the brilliance of it it's the brilliance of the score i'm not talking about the show as a show because i still i'm not sure necessarily how i feel about it as a musical per se as the with the book and with everything as a um uh if if i think it is just like a great show with every, all the elements, but as a score and hearing, it, it's friggin' genius. It's friggin' genius. And, and, and also listening to the orchestrations and it's a combination of strings and yet the, the, the electronic and it's so, it's so glorious and so smart. I've always, you know, I sing a parody a Sondheim parody called Another Hundred Lyrics. Another hundred lyrics just flew out of my brain as I stand here on stage with another hundred lyrics that I'll never recall and on every damn page is another hundred lyrics that'll drive me insane right in front of you all cause the words are a pain not to mention the sprawl of the melody but we're all singing Sondheim some songs are weird, some are quick we're all singing Sondheim and when the rhymes get this thick it isn't fair absurd amounts and we lose our places where the phrases change with the rhythmic flows now i think i've got it because it's parts of breeze but you never know well the tempo 
switch your willy, change the key, cause something has to go. Did you find my measure? Cause I looked in vain. And another modulation to increase the pain. Look, I'll learn it by tomorrow if I don't go insane. And another hundred lyrics just flew out of my brain. And the irony is, it isn't hard. I don't think it's hard to sing Sondheim at all. I think it, it it's hard to learn some of his songs, but once you know it, he does so much of the work for you. He crafts he crafts things so beautifully. And in listening to this album, it just gave me even more appreciation for him and uh, the different genres of music in one show and um, and the performances. You know the TikTok dance. You know realize right. that David Shire who wrote Baby, wrote that dance music. Wally Harper, someone else who wrote the wrote the other dance music. One of the things that's like an amazing thing for me in my life is that I've worked with many of the people who are in company. Mm-hmm. As So that was like the first time I met Pam Myers and now she's a friend. But I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I played, po- I saw Larry Kurt do it. I played poker with him on a flight home from Albuquerque when I was like, 23 and you know just so many so many incredible performers on that and Mm -hmm. um so i just have even more respect for that music and that score and and as an album it's just just beautiful yeah i'm gonna write to thomas shepherd because I know him, of course. Sure. But I just want to let him know that re-listening to it, how it just was just incredible to me. That's great. I'm I'm glad to hear because yeah, it is. It it's a remarkable achievement as an album, and and uh, and so much fun. What is your favorite song in Company? Do you think? Do you think you could pick one? Well, God, going I'm, to the back of the LP, folks. I'm Let's looking. See. You know. I was thinking, like, if I was doing the Desert Island Discs, mm-hmm. where you like, yeah. pick seven or what eight right. songs, and and to be, a, I probably would pick the opening number. Really? Just oh, as wow. it is on the album. Uh huh. I just think it's thrilling. I sang it. I got to sing it at a concert. I a Sondheim concert. I did. Um, at, at the 92nd Street Y, maybe two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I'm singing it. And of course I went, oh, that's what they're saying. Oh, I couldn't sure, I, right. I it with, with the lyrics. <laughs> I love another hundred people. Mm-hmm. I love getting married today. I love, I think, um, poor baby. Mm. I mean, I being alive. I think they're all the only song as Ooh, a this child. This is interesting. Okay, the only song as a child that I was, and now I think it's just glorious. But someone is waiting was not a song that like as like a nine year old. Mm-hmm. I want and the remember it was an album. It was right. an album, yeah, so you it. couldn't you couldn't really. We didn't. We weren't allowed to lift up the needle no. in case we scratched it. Right. So, but here, you know, as an adult, it's it's beautiful. 
mm-hmm. but that was the only one that I was kind of like, also listening to it again. I remember I was in, I was living in Boston. This was like in the late eighties. And I suddenly thought of, of company album. And I just suddenly heard the beginning of it in my mind. And I hadn't heard it in years. And I went and I found it and I put it on and I remembered the correct key. It started. <laughs> Which I thought was, I thought was amazing. Oh, Cause it's man. like, I know that it's just. It's in, in your bones. Yeah. yeah. So it was in, so re-listen, re-listening this week, I was like, there was one thing that I forgot an order of something, but, Oh, and the, have I got a girl for you? Oh, just, mm. just fabulous. Yeah. It's so, so fun. Th- it, thank yeah. you for inviting me to do this to thank you for doing this. because I don't just having listened to this again has just made been the highlight of my week and just remembering it and reminiscing. And, and then as a, a years later, for the first time appreciating what a good record it is mm. so i i owe that to you so thank you oh thank you for i'm so glad we could we could have this conversation it's a thrill to speak with you as somebody who i've admired for years and heard on so many you're one of those people who like oh you're on that recording or you're on that recording or i've heard you <laughs> sing this song oh my god like the page on your website here hunter liz slash discography check it out gang you'll see that like you've <laughs> you've heard Liz on more things than you think you have. Phone rings, door chimes, in comes company. No strings, good times, room hums company. Late nights, quick bites, party games, deep talks, long walks, telephone calls. Thoughts shared, souls bared, private names, all those photos up on the walls. The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help the podcast grow. If you like movie musicals, then you have to check out patreon.com slash originalcastpod to learn about our bonus podcast, The Original Cast, at the movies. You can follow The Original Cast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to Liz Calloway for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? That's what it's really about, isn't it? That's what it's really about, really about.